the story has been told by John Cassis. John Cassis is the former chaplain of the Chicago Bears about one interesting team meeting that he was a part of way back in the day as it goes, as the story goes, uh, the head coach at that time, the legendary Mike Ditka, was giving the team a pep talk before the game and just really getting everybody going. And as he got everybody all worked up, and I remember moments, I, was, uh, I played football uh, in junior high, and we always did this, we had to do the Lord's Prayer before every game. And I, I just, I remember then, and as I look back on it now, I'm just like, that was really weird. Why are we saying the Lord's Prayer right now before we go, ready to go bash each other, you know, with our helmets and our pads on? But he got everybody all worked up, and he was trying to fire everyone up, and he turned to, you remember this name, William Refrigerator Perry. Mike Dicka turns to the fridge, all 6'2", 335 pounds of him, and he turns to the fridge and he asks him, Fridge, would you cap off my talk with a recitation of the Lord's Prayer? And then quarterback at the time, Jim McMahon, tapped John Cassis on the shoulder and he said, I'll bet you 50 bucks that he doesn't even know the Lord's Prayer. And John Cass is feeling sort of guilty, right? You know, we're in the middle of the Lord's Prayer here, and I'm making a bet on the Lord's Prayer. It's a little weird. But he decides, hey, it's good-natured. I'll take you up on the challenge. 50 bucks that he does know the Lord's Prayer. And so big William Refrigerator Perry does the requisite kneeling, and he prepares himself to say the Lord's Prayer. And these words begin to come out of his mouth. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, and at that moment, John Cassis receives a tap on the shoulder from Jim McMahon himself, and he says, well, I guess I do owe you 50 bucks after all. He did know the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Guys, prayer... I just have to say this. I always tell people, uh, because they're like, Ryan, you're professional, right? Like, you know the Bible. You know the Word. You know all about the spiritual disciplines and how to pray. Nah. Prayer is one of, not one of, it is my weakest area in my life in following God. Prayer, I think, for many people is one of life's greatest mysteries. At, at its lowest point, prayer to most people is just shouting into a void and the off chance that maybe somebody will be out there and they'll listen to this prayer that you're offering. At prayer's highest point for, for many people, prayer merges into love. It, 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 it is the very presence of God. It becomes so real that it's not just words that we're saying to God. We're not just listening to God. There's a sense of God's generosity and his delight, and his grace. But I think that probably for the majority of us in here, those who are watching at home, prayer takes place somewhere in between those things, between those two extremes. Prayer is not a shot in the dark, nor is it many times an ecstatic, romantic experience. And I think sometimes we either paint it as one or the other. That all, oh, like if you are not, every single time you come to God in prayer, just Oh, floating on a cloud in heaven, then you're doing prayer wrong. Well, I don't know about you, but there are very, very few times in my life that I've ever floated on a cloud and had this ecstatic experience in prayer. But it's somewhere in between that that we find 
where God wants to meet us and how he wants to speak us and how he wants us to live for him. That's where we've been for now. It's our second week. How do I live for God? Last week we talked about thinking eternally, what it means to think beyond this earth. And today we are going to talk about pursuing God personally. And specifically we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of prayer. And again, for for many people, prayer is not just a mystery, but it's an an enigma, a puzzle. I, I, I really truly believe this for everybody in this room. We know that we ought to do it. We ought to engage God in prayer. We ought to engage in communicating with God and relating to God, but we're just not sure how to do it. I mean, sure, we could like probably go away from here and we could start off today and we might get to Monday and Tuesday. And if we're really lucky, several of us to Wednesday, but then we kind of just fizzle out like, dude, this feels like I'm doing the same thing over and over and over again. That's what's at the heart of the Lord's Prayer. And actually, the Lord's Prayer is a mistitling of this prayer. The Lord's Prayer is actually in John 17 when he talks to his disciples and said, my prayer is that you would make them love each other and that they would be one. That's that's the Lord's Prayer. This is probably better titled the Disciples' Prayer because you remember how it starts. The disciples approach Jesus and they say, Jesus, could you teach us how to pray? Not what to pray, Not how long to pray, but how do we pray? And it's really important to emphasize before we even start reading this, that the Lord's Prayer is not a formula. It's like if you just do this, a blueprint or a template for how we are to approach talking with God. One scholar says it this way, N.T. Wright says, it appears that in the disciples' prayer, Jesus intended the sequence of thought in his prayer to be more like scaffolding and not the whole building. And I think it's a really helpful way to think about this. So we don't look at the disciples' prayer and say, "This this is exactly what I need to pray. Every single time, if I just pray this, something will happen. It's the bones, if you will. It's not the whole body. It's not the meat of everything. And so we begin reading. Some of us have already read this this morning on Bible study, but we're going to read it again. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1 because verse 1 actually sets up everything of this whole section, and it's very, very important for what we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Jesus says in verse 1, watch out. Be careful in some translations. In other translations, it says, take heed. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. Now, I want to stop there because many people would say this, oh, so we're not supposed to give, and we're not supposed to pray, and we're not supposed to fast. Those are the three spiritual disciplines in this whole section. We're not supposed to do any of that in public? No, what does he say? Don't do it publicly, comma, to be admired by others. If your motivation for doing any of these things is to get the oohs and ahs of the crowd, you are on the wrong track, my friend. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Then we're going to jump down to verse 5 because next week we're going to come back and talk about what's in verses 2 through 4, giving. 
But verse 5 says, when you pray, by the way, Jesus assumes that you are going to be praying, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth. That is all the reward that they will ever get. But when you do pray, again, assuming that you are because you should be praying, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, pray to your father in private. It sort of reminds you of an Old Testament character, doesn't it? Who does it remind you of? Daniel, right? In the book of Daniel, Daniel finds himself in this posture, in this movement and moment. It says, pray to your father in private, and then your father who sees everything will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. The word used there for babble is the Greek word batalogeo. It literally means bata, bata. Like somebody just walking around saying gibberish. That's what he's talking about, babbling on, just saying things for the sake of saying things. They think their prayers, the Gentiles think their prayers, are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. But pray like this. Here's the framework. Here's the blueprint. By the way, just a, a little aside, we are going to come to the end of today, and rather than just preaching this, we're going to practice this here in service. So I'm going to try to get things moving. But it doesn't do any good to talk about the Lord's Prayer and the framework of it if we don't actually initiate the relationship and do it. This is how it should be done. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those, or have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Because if you forgive those who sin against you, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now again, here is what I would bet for a vast majority of us in here this morning. All of us, many of us, most of us desire to have an effective, deeper more intimate relationship with God through specifically prayer, talking to God. And I believe that most of us instinctively believe prayer works. I know that's a crude word to say that prayer works. But that in, something, in prayer there is something powerful that happens. But when it comes to doing it, often it's another story. There is an old African legend, an old African story about a, a village, a little remote village. And in this particular village, the new converts to faith in Christ were told to go out from the village, uh, somewhere out in the woods, somewhere by themselves every single day and find their own spot. And there they would begin their day in prayer. Go seek, the God, go seek God, go pursue God personally in prayer every single day. This is what they were taught. And so over time, as these new converts would get up in the morning and they would scatter from the village to different parts of the surrounding jungle, the grass where they had walked to their spot was naturally beat down and killed. A, a, a path would be worn from their hut, their home, out to the spot that they would go every single day. And you could see that the pathway was created by their walking back and forth every single day. And as the story goes, 
because sometimes grass grew, you could tell the people who were really slacking off in their devotional life, right? It's a genius idea. I'm like, I want to go plant tall grass everywhere. I can just tell, all right? And so one of the elders, as the story goes, of the churches uh, who was in charge of discipling the new converts would simply say to another brother and sister, when they noticed that there was grass that was growing, they would say just that, brother, sister, the grass is growing in your path. I love that, don't you? This is a great line. I, I think that in many ways we could, we could say that to one another gently and lovingly, but truthfully is we could look at each other's lives and we could just see in each other's lives and say, there's grass growing in your path, isn't there? Is there grass growing in your path this morning? Guys, so much of living holy for God has to do with staying in contact, staying on the path, and making sure that your path is clear is a really great place to start when it comes to relating to the Lord and living for God. Guys, prayer is one of, if not probably one of the two, one or two most essential things that you need to understand, and not just understand just to gain knowledge, but to apply in your life to thrive in the Christian life, to live life for God, to live life God's way. What, what is prayer supposed to look like, and why do we have such a hard time doing it? I think what happens is when we misunderstand and we misapply talking to God, communicating with God, relating to God, it has massive implications for faithfully and fully living for God. And that's my first point for this morning, and I want us to see this as we read the disciples' prayer here, is that we pursue God most powerfully and purposefully in prayer. Guys, this is where, this is foundational. This is where it all starts. And I know you're telling me like, yes, Ryan, we know prayer is very important. I, I don't know if we grasp all the time how incredibly important prayer is. Brian was saying in Bible study this morning, we usually go to God in prayer when? When there is a crisis, right? Something has gone wrong. Something is off the tracks. And oh boy, now we better get our relationship right with God. That is a backwards way of thinking. Our relationship should be cultivated every single day in a way that we don't operate out of crisis mode. We just are in constant contact and communication with God. And so we pursue God most powerfully and purposefully in prayer. Say that 10 times fast. That's a lot of peace. What's really interesting, though, if you notice as we read through this, the very first thing that Jesus says in this whole section, the first thing he starts out with is not an encouragement, but what? A warning, right? Watch out, he says in verse 1. Take heed. Watch yourself. And why would he do that? Why would he start out with a warning? And this is why, not just with prayer, but he talks about giving and fasting here, that whenever you do something good and something that can become public, there is a danger because you are being watched. And what do most people like to do when they are watched? They like to perform. Maybe sometimes subconsciously and unintentionally, but we, even if you are the, the shyest person on this planet, each one of us has ingrained within us performance. I've got to perform. I've got to put on an act and a show. And it's very, very dangerous. And why Jesus says, watch out, be careful, watch your life, 
It's because the flesh loves to be admired. We love to be pat on the back, and we love to have nice things said to us. And so what happens when those things happen? They become our motivation. They become our reason for doing something. I get compliments. People tell me that I'm awesome, and it just, I just keep on puffing up. I'm wonderful when I do those things. It's sort of like this. And I apologize if this steps on anybody's toes, but there are situations and circumstances in the church. It doesn't always have to happen in the church. It happens sometimes in society that people say things like this. I want to give you a certain amount of money, but when I give you that money, I want my name on a plaque. And I want, I want, a, I want a really big, like super huge plaque in a whole wing of the building. Like this is the Ryan Phelps Memorial Children's Wing of the church. I want my name on that plaque. I, I wanted to say donated by really big in those letters so people really understand where it came from. And I'd like you to say something about who I am and what I've done as well in a little sign underneath that plaque. You know, you, you know what I'm getting at here? This is what Jesus is talking about. Guys, why in the world would you want a plaque or a sign when you are losing your reward that you're going to get in heaven? That's what Jesus says here, doesn't he? People who act in this way, whether it be with giving, praying, fasting, when they do it to be admired by the other people around them, they're getting their reward. They're getting their pat on the back of the attaboy, girl, but you're losing all, every bit of your reward in heaven. Guys, you are either going to get a reward now, pats on the back, or you can wait and you can let God reward you. And by the way, as I read my scripture and especially the gospels, God does a whole lot better job of rewarding than what we get here on earth. He's the master of reward. Guys, heaping up praise and reward on this earth here causes us to sacrifice our eternal reward in heaven. Again, N.T. Wright translates Matthew 6, 1 in this way. He says, when you are practicing your faithfulness, your piety, your holiness, your devotion towards God, mind that you don't do it with an eye on the audience. Otherwise, you won't have any reward from your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus says here in Matthew 6, 1. Now, I just want to slow down for a moment and talk about a really interesting feature that comes up continually in this small section in Matthew chapter 6. It's Jesus' focus on reward or repayment. We talked about it a little bit last week, but it didn't stop and slow down in what Jesus says. He says it here in verse 1. Don't do it to be admired by others, because you will lose your reward from your Father in heaven. He says it again in verse 5. Go, shut the door, be in private, then your Father who sees everything will reward you. Guys, Jesus' focus here and Jesus' focus for any of our lives is our eagerness to talk with God, to love God, to please God, doing everything for God and living for God for His eyes only. We do everything in this life for an audience of one. God, how do I live for you, God? Not how do I impress everybody else around me, God, but how do, how do I live for you? 
And guys, as it deals specifically with prayer, what it seems like Jesus is trying to say here in Matthew 6 in this opening part is what you are in private is what you really are. doesn't matter what kind of public persona you give or what image you give on the outside when you're around everybody else, but what you are in private is what you really are. Again, N.T. Wright says what we need to do, what Jesus says here, go into your inner room and talk to your Father. You don't need to make a song and dance about it, nor do you have to go on mouthing pious phrases. The point is to do business with God one-on-one. Man-to-man. Woman-to-man. Just, just audience of one. The word that Jesus uses here, in my translation, it's good deeds. In some of yours, it might say piety or devotion. That word that's used there for good deeds is actually a really complex and multifaceted word. But Jesus' point in using that word is that whether we're dealing with money or prayer or fasting or any other commitment and devotion that we give to God, what matters most is motive. Why are you doing what you're doing for God? And guys, we always have to check our motive. If these things are done with an eye on the audience, they become rotten at the core. And all of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where we find Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. All of the Sermon on the Mount is about and centered on God and living for God and how we do that rightly and how that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. If you were to look back in Matthew chapter 5, I think, and I've said this before, the whole interpretive key of all of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5.20. It says this, But I warn you, Unless your righteousness, your right living, is better than the right living of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's why Jesus will come into the end of Matthew chapter 5 before he goes into what we're reading this morning. In Matthew 5.48, he says this, You are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Guys, we have to have a living that is not self-righteous, but it is a, a notch above the people who try to just do it out of motivation of being noticed, as Jesus is talking about here. Or as one scholar puts it, you're living a life that is solid chocolate all the way through. I ran across this story this week of a man who was abroad, and I don't know what country he's in, it doesn't really matter, but he found himself walking the streets and a hunger pain came over him. And so he went to a little uh, side vendor and he got himself a chocolate bar and he was taking that chocolate bar home and he was so excited to get home and eat that so he could kind of satisfy his hunger for a little bit. And as he unwrapped the chocolate and he had that thing and he's getting ready to put it in his mouth, he looked at that chocolate and what he could only describe as what seemed like a hundred little worms, his chocolate bar was moving. And he said, yeah, no, I'm not that hungry. Guys, Jesus didn't know about chocolate, but he did know about things that looked really fine on the outside, but they were absolutely rotten and crawling with worms on the inside. That's what he's talking about here in Matthew 6. And so here's what I want to do is, what does the disciples' prayer tell us about regular, personal 
authentic pursuit of God. And here's the first thing. This is like an overarching kind of cap for all of the disciples' prayer is, guys, the prayer is deeply meaningful and it's packed with significance. This prayer is not some abracadabra, alakazam, poof, just plug in X, Y, and Z like some magic formula or some secret charm. It is strongly implied throughout this entire prayer that we share life and we share all the experiences of life with our Creator and with our Sustainer. Deeply, deeply meaningful. The second thing that I think that we see right off the bat, and we're specifically going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 here for just a bit, is that everything in the prayer is based on seeing God as what? What does he say? Our Father. He says it actually not just in verse 9. He says it a couple times before that and starts referring to God as Father. This is unheard of, by the way, in Jewish culture. Nobody referred to God as Father. Father. The word, the Greek word is pater. It is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Abba. You've probably heard that before, which is a term of endearment more like daddy. Nobody in Jewish culture referred to God, Jehovah, Yahweh, powerful God as daddy. Everything, guys, in this prayer, it is, I'm convinced actually, it's my perception as I read this prayer that it is the foundation and it is the basis for all of prayer in life. Some have even commented that the whole sermon, not just this section of Matthew 6, but the whole Sermon on the Mount could be more aptly titled What It Means to Live for God. Guys, Jesus, Jews in Jesus' day used this title to go all the way back to God's actions in the book of Exodus and in his rescuing character and demonstrating, as it says in Exodus 4.22, that Israel is my son, my firstborn. Guys, do you realize that the most astounding and unique of all Christian revelation was the revelation of God as Father? I mean, other religions present God as creator. Christianity does as well. Judaism does as well. He rightly is creator. Some religions paint God as solely a great ruler or sometimes a dictator. And God is in control of everything, is he not? That's true. But only Judaism and then Christianity ultimately presents God as father. That's unique to Judaism and Christianity. To understand God as Father is to take the first step towards living for Him. How do I live for God? I need to see God as my Father. Abba. Daddy. Guys, we must pursue devotion to God in prayer. And I say pursue very, very intentionally there because devotion to anything in life is cultivated and it is developed. It is pursued. Walking in lifelong devotion is cultivated by intentionally choosing devotion step by step by step. Living for God is developed by pursuing Him personally, and for this morning we are talking specifically about and in prayer. Do you want to know God better? Do you want to see God better? See Him as your Father. 
Communicating with God informs how we live for God, and communicating with God should cultivate our relationship to God. And it all starts, like I said, with saying, our what? That was weak. That was weak sauce. Our Father. It's where it all starts, guys. Oswald Chambers says it this way, we have to pray with our eyes on God, not on the difficulties around us. This is what I would call, I'm going to attach several words to each section of the disciples' prayer here. This is what I would call here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, adoration. Our prayers should not begin with a list of the things that we need from the Lord or that we want God to do, but instead praise and adoration. Guys, I want to say it this way. We have to learn to properly praise God in order to make petitions of God. You see that, right? Don't you? We can't just go run into God with a list of things like, I need all this stuff, God. No, no, we need to know God and we need to adore God before anything. The third thing I notice as we move through this prayer to the next part is that time with God and time spent with God and time communicating with God in prayer should reorient us toward His kingdom and His purposes. What does He say here? May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guys, often, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but often much of what we pray for and much of what we do in life is just really, really short-sighted. Far too temporal. Far too us-centered. Instead, prayer should reflect God's agenda, God's purposes, God's will. Again, eternal thinking that we talked about last week. Kingdom-focused prayers. I have a question for you. If God answered all of your prayers today, like just... Snap, everything was answered right now that you've been praying for. To what degree would his kingdom come and his will be done in your life? Start a list in your life of kingdom-minded prayers. Big prayers, impossible prayers, seemingly impossible prayers. That's what he's talking about here in verse 10. So big that It only happens if God's kingdom comes and His will is done in your life and in your community and in this world. And furthermore, when we talk to God about His kingdom, we're really talking about Him ruling our life. That's what He's talking about here. Your will be done, not just on earth as it is in heaven, but in my life, in your life, in our lives. Is God ruling your life? Does he have authority? Does he have the final say in your life? Have you surrendered your life to him? Is he the king of you? You see, a a true Christian and a true follower of Christ is someone who has undergone a kingdom shift. Not my kingdom, but your kingdom, God. They've focused from, uh, from, from, uh, or shifted from focusing on the here and the now and the temporal And it's all about God's agenda. No longer their agenda. No longer necessarily their happiness, but the happiness of God and the growth of the kingdom. If Matthew 6, 9 is about adoration, I think Matthew 6, 10 is all about submission. 
Our highest concern is not our will, our plan, our agenda, but God's. And what's very interesting to me as you read through the Gospels is that even though Jesus was fully 100% God, what do we constantly find Jesus doing? What does Jesus say over and over? I I have only come to do what? The will of Why in the world would we not do that? And you understand as we look at this, guys, 9 and 10 is kind of like the first half of the prayer. And the first half of the prayer is all about who? God. Guys, prayer that does not start with God is always in a danger zone. Just tuck that one away. Maybe that's just your takeaway for the day. Maybe that would just drastically shift a lot of prayers if we just started with God. Not God, you know, could you, could you help me get an A on that? God, God, could you please help me get enough money so that I could buy that car? or that? No, start with God. Who are you, God? How can I adore you, God? The second part that we're going to move into is all about us in relation to God. Not just us self-centeredly, but our relationship with God. You see, one of the problems that we have is that we're out of balance when we talk to God. We skip the first part, adoration and submission, and we go right to the second part. Gimme, gimme, gimme. The fourth thing I notice here in this prayer is that relating to God and living for God should have us recognize our absolute dependence on God. What does he say here? Give us today. And the idea here is not just just in this moment today, but actually give us the bread for tomorrow, the food that we need for tomorrow. And again, we understand because we've talked about this enough, he's not just talking about physical food, is he? He's talking about spiritual food mostly. Give us only what we need, God, because you know what we need anyways. He says that so many times throughout this whole section. Give us what we need and not what we greed. Guys, this line right here, verse 11, is the first real ask in the entire prayer to this point. Jesus is pointing his disciples and each of us back to the most basic and fundamental truth in life. We are helpless, utterly and absolutely helpless without God. We are all dependent on God for every part of our life. And the ask that we give is not about luxury, is not about excess, but humble reliance on God for just enough. Give me just what I need, God. Which is, in a nutshell, what? God and God alone. That's what we really need. Guys, you understand that the main reward of prayer is God himself. Knowing God himself. I want you to look over in Matthew chapter 7. Starting at verse 7, he continues on this concept of prayer. He says, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, and he gives a little bit of an Im- uh, a metaphor here. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask 
him. Guys, we can ask for anything we need. Now, that does not mean that when you ask, you receive everything that you want. We can ask for anything that we truly need in this life in confidence, in 100% confidence that God is far more concerned about it than even you are, than I am. Guys, we never outgrow. doesn't matter how old you get in this life, you never outgrow your dependence on God. This is what I would call in verse 11, provision. It's all about provision. God certainly wants to hear our needs, but often we bring him the whines and the moans and the complaints. Prayer for many people is this primarily a gripe fest. God wants to hear our fears and our worries and our frustrations and our doubts, but more than anything, he wants to know that we understand we are absolutely dependent on him. God's got this. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week. He knows all your needs. He says that over and over again in this section. Just go back and read it again. And all the time he says, hey, your, hey, your father, your dad already knows what you need. Fifth thing, how we live in the presence of God in prayer specifically and how we live for God should lead us to receive, to give, and to rely on God's good grace. Guys, daily time and communication with God connects us to the well of grace that we find in God. We find grace as God reveals our own blind spots and areas of sin that we would often be tempted to overlook. But that God in his gracious, utterly gracious kindness will not let us turn away from those sins. And that this is a very important part of this whole thing. That not we just say, oh, God is being so good and gracious to me, and I'll slurp in a little bit more of that, and a little bit more of that, and a little bit more about that. But we receive that grace, and it should compel us to give that grace to other people. I'll say that again because this, I think, is sometimes the toughest part of this whole idea of prayer. We like to be forgiven, don't we? but we often don't like to forgive. Jesus assumes that we will need to ask for forgiveness, not sparingly, but abundantly on more than one occasion. But it's met by the comfort that as much forgiveness that we need in our lives, it is available and God will give it to us in his mercy and grace on only one condition, right? This is very conditional. We must be forgiving people. Why? It's because, guys, the heart that will not open in forgiveness to others will not be open to receiving God's forgiveness either. That's what Jesus says over and over again. Matthew 6, 12, and 13, especially 12, Matthew 6, 12 is all about confession. Adoration, submission, provision, confession. Confession is about getting our eyes off of ourselves and getting our hearts right with God and other people. And then verse 13, don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Guys, although God doesn't fret about us being safe and comfortable, he does want us to be protected from the attacks of the evil one, from spiritual warfare. So when we pray for protection, we pray for it rightly and saying, keep me from Satan's arrows in my life. 
Guys, this is the framework, especially verses 9 through 13, the blueprint Jesus gives to his disciples. Here is God in this moment right now, in this prayer right here, waiting and longing for you to relate with him daily as you grow in your knowledge and your love and your service to God. How do you live for God? That's our question, isn't it? The theme. How do we live for God? It starts, and here is a good start right here, in the disciples' prayer. Notice what it does not say, and what I've not said this morning is how long you pray, or how much you pray, but it's all about this, guys. How much do you love to pray? That determines how, actually, how well you actually live for and know God. Guys, prayer is the conduit. It is the wire that connects us to God's power. And when you cut yourself off from that by stopping communicating with God, it limits your ability to victoriously live in and for Christ. And here's what happens. We don't, we don't live for God in a posture of prayer because we want to impress God with big flowy words. Like, do you ever think that when you pray that God's up there and be like, ooh, that is, ooh, this man, this woman is very verbose. That's a big word, by the way. It's a big, he's, oh, God knows all the words. You're not saying any word that he doesn't know that's impressing him. We don't go to God in prayer to impress God, but we go to God in prayer to be impressed upon by God. We don't pray to tell God things that he didn't know before we told him. We pray to commune with God and appeal to a loving God who wants to bring us every need and every worry before his throne. Warren Wearsby says it this way, guys, the important thing about prayer is not simply getting an answer to your prayer, but it's being the kind of person that God can trust with an answer to prayer. Can God trust you with the answer that he gives to your prayer? I heard a really interesting analogy this week, and it all, again, is focused on this concept of knowing God as our Father. And I want you to imagine it this way. I want you to imagine two different um, images. One image is that of a boarder or a renter, someone who rents a house. Every person who rents a house or an apartment, wherever it be, has what over them? What's that person called? A landlord. How do people often relate to their landlord? Now, sometimes it might be very friendly and chummy, but oftentimes it's very what? Business-like. You give me your money for rent, and I take care of you, and I do things, and I make sure that everything's fixed up around your apartment or house. It's, it's, it's kind of cold and detached, isn't it? Here's another image of somebody living in a house. A child. How does a child live in a house? Freely, right? Unless you're coming back from college and mom and dad say you need to pay rent now, okay? But usually, as you're growing up and you're still in high school, you live there freely. You eat freely. You don't pay money to mom and dad. You don't, they, don't, they don't like, okay, here are the terms of the lease. Guys, this is the difference sometimes in how we relate to God. Many people relate to God as a boarder or a renter. It's very businesslike and cold and detached. And instead, what God tells us, and he tells us specifically, and why he gives us this model and framework through Jesus, he says, I want you to relate to me as 
a father would relate to a child. Because when it comes to relating to God, guys, you are either one of the two, a renter or a child. Living for God starts at our approach to God and our attitude towards God. The words, our Father, will determine everything about the way you relate to and you live for God. And just as we talked about last week, prayer is not for play acting. It's not for show. God doesn't want our words as much as he wants our hearts. And so I'm going to put up this last slide here. And what I want to do as the band comes back up here and they're just going to play through some music is I want us to practically walk through the words that we talked this morning. Braden, can you go to the next? Well, actually, I think it's a slide. There we go. I just want to pray for a few minutes through adoration and submission and provision and confession and protection. And what I'm going to do is just give you a few minutes, and for some of us, it will seem like it's actually not just minutes, but it's like a half hour or a day. It's going to be uncomfortable for some of us. But I want you to specifically walk through every part of this prayer. And again, don't necessarily say the phrases there, but I'm just giving you the phrases to give you the idea. This is how we approach God. Start with a prayer that that needs to be confessed to God that we would do that today and that we would lastly follow up and end everything by saying, God, keep Satan's hands off of me. And so, like I said, for just a moment here, I want you to do whatever you want to do. Bow your heads, close your eyes, keep your eyes open so you can see what's up here, but just take a few minutes and walk through the sections of this prayer and pray to your Father. Today, we desperately need you. we would remember that and that what we have heard this morning in your word what we have practiced for just a few moments here what we've put into play lord would not just start and end here but it would give us a, a great model for how we approach you and you do ask us you do allow us you do call us to approach you boldly that it would help us to grasp what you are offering to us. The prayer is not what we have to do, it's what we get to do. And I pray that in our lives, if whatever path that may have been grass covered or become dusty, we would beat that back. We would sweep that away in our lives and we would get back to knowing you and talking with you and communicating with you. Our Father, we come to you now as we sing this final song and may the words of it continue to express the worship and devotion that we have towards you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.